Well, if you've been tra uh, tracking along with us for the last uh, several weeks, you know that we're in the midst of a series that we've simply been calling Lessons from the Life of Joseph. Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And we've been traveling through the back portion of the Old Testament book of Genesis because there we find the story of a man named Joseph. And it is said of Joseph that Joseph is a man of all seasons. And it doesn't matter what Joseph finds himself, what situation he finds himself in, whatever stage of life he might be in, Joseph seems to always land on his feet. He always seems to have a good outlook. He always seems to be in good spirits. And I think much of that has to do with the fact that Joseph was a man who never took his eyes off of God. Whether he was up or whether he was down, whether he was in or out, whether he was uh, in the palace or whether he was in the dungeon or the prison, uh, when we look at Joseph's story, at least what the, um, what the biblical record contains, we see a man that has his soul anchored in the Lord. And we see that and we admire that, and it's for that reason that we choose to spend a number of weeks looking at Joseph's life and trying to figure out what lessons we can pull from this story. We've said week after week during this series that the main thrust or the mega theme of this particular series and the mega theme of Joseph's story is none other than the providence of God, um, the protective care of God, the timely and thoughtful preparation uh, for future eventualities. In other words, God knows exactly what we need, and he, for those of us who live according to his, uh, his, his standards, his concepts, his precepts, he provides that for us no matter what the circumstances or no matter what the situations hold. We've been using uh, the passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, as just sort of an underlying springboard for our series here and in this, uh, Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose for them. In other words, everything works together in the end. For those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes, and for those of us who believe this, for those of us who live this out, who have a basic understanding of this, it really changes the game as to how we relate to life, how we deal with struggles, how we deal with success even, and all of life, the things that life throws at us. So for the purposes of getting us all on the same page, I just want to briefly recap this story so that we can all have a sense of understanding of where we're going to continue on today. So we began this series opening up the Bible at Genesis chapter 37, and there we meet young Joseph. And we find out that Joseph is the favorite son of his father Jacob. Now, this is problematic because Joseph has lots of lots of other brothers. Brothers don't particularly like how Joseph's the favorite, don't particularly like how his father, how their father dotes over Joseph, gives him this fancy code and gives him all these sorts of things and showers all this favor on him. It also occurs to them that God favors Joseph. And so Joseph has these dreams and these dreams paint a picture of God exalting him uh, over his brothers and over his uh, parents even. And his brothers don't like that. I mean, since they don't like that, they hatch a murderous plan to kill him. They spare his life, and instead, they sell him to Ishmaelite traders that are heading to Egypt. And in Egypt, Joseph finds himself in chains. He finds himself a slave. But since Joseph was wise, since Joseph was a man full of God's spirit, he doesn't stay there. He's eventually moved up to where he's running everything for his master. He's a man of great power. 
But all of a sudden, the, uh, the Potiphar, uh, the guy that Joseph was working for, his wife takes a liking to Joseph and tries to seduce him and tries to tempt him. And Joseph, being a man of integrity, refuses her advances, and she accuses him of trying to rape her, which puts him into prison, right? So we have these huge reversals of fortune. But Joseph keeps his wits about him. He doesn't forsake God. And even in the midst of being in the prison, he's still on duty. And as such, he interprets some dreams for, for some of uh, the, uh, Pharaoh's key officials, and the dreams come true. And the dreams come true. And Joseph, as he's relating these uh, translations to these dreams, says, listen, man, when you get out of here, don't forget about me. Tell Pharaoh about me. The guy promises, swears up and down that he do it, forgets about Joseph for two years. He sits and rots in jail for two more years. And last week, we picked up the story of chapter 41, where we see that finally... The, uh, the chief cupbearer, who Joseph helped while he was in prison, remembers that Joseph can interpret dreams because the Pharaoh has had a series of troubling dreams, uh, none of, uh, the, the likes of which none of his seers or his magicians can help him interpret. So he calls for Joseph. Joseph gives him the interpretation to these uh, series of dreams, and basically the interpretation is this, that seven years of, of, of unbelievable harvest will overtake Egypt. They will have all sorts of crops, experience all sorts of wealth, but on the back end of that seven years of prosperity and great harvest, there will be seven years of severe famine. And because that will take place, then they need to store up this food over the seven good years and silo it and protect it so that when the seven years of famine come, they can sort of dole this stuff out um, and not really be hurt by the famine. So that's the interpretation of the dream. And so beyond that, Pharaoh says, listen, since you're so wise and since you're so full of the spirit talking to Joseph, listen, why don't you become the governor of all this? Why don't you manage this? In all the land of Egypt, nobody will have more power than you but me, the Pharaoh, right? So we see these reversals of fortune. Joseph's luck keep changing over and over and over, but we discover that it's not luck at all. It's God's providence. He's working something out. He's doing something within this young man. And today we pick up the story at the end of chapter 41, at the very end of chapter 41. If you blink, you'll miss the stuff that we'll cover today as you travel through this story. And we see that Joseph is entering a stage, a new stage and a new phase of his life, a welcome new stage of his life. Uh, I told you last week that he had a reversal of fortune, and this would be his last reversal of fortune. He'll never go down after this. He'll never be betrayed after this. He'll never go back into the prison uh, uh, after this. After this stage here, he stays pretty much on top. But what we'll discover as Joseph enters this new uh, stage of life is that in order for him to move ahead, in order for, order for him to do what God has called him to do, he's got to figure out what to do with the things of the past. In order for him to enjoy this and to thrive in this new stage, and in this new uh, sort of page that's been turned of his life, he's got to figure out what to do with his past. For those of you who've read this story, and for those of you who know it well, and those of you who've just listened to my four or five minute uh, sort of retelling of the story, you know that there's a lot that happened in his past. A lot of downs, as well as some ups. A lot of loss, a lot of pain, a lot of grief. He's dealt with some abandonment, years of frustration, years of questioning. He's dealt with false accusations, and he's even dealt with a lot of good stuff along the way. 
But he's got to figure out how to square away the things of the past in order to move forward and to thrive in his present and in his future. And I think the same is true for us. In order for us to move forward, in order for us to thrive in this stage of life that God has us in right now and the stages of life that will come, we will need to figure out what to do with the past. We will need to deal decisively and wisely with the things of the past so that we can move forward and thrive. And today I'm calling this message simply the surprising importance of forgetting. The surprising importance of forgetting, particularly as we move forward. And I think this is specifically important because one of our basic dysfunctions as human beings is that we have the tendency to forget the stuff that we're supposed to remember and remember the stuff that we're supposed to forget. Isn't that true? I mean, we just, just remove this for a second from a spiritual sort of realm at all. Just think of it naturally. I'm probably one of the more forgetful people that you'll, that you'll meet. And if you don't believe me, just ask my wife. I hear it every other day, several times a day, how forgetful I am. But this rings true. Sometimes I forget very important things, but I seem to remember the silliest of things sometimes or the things that I should not remember. The same is true with God's people. That includes us. We forget the stuff we're supposed to remember, and we remember the stuff we're supposed to forget. If you look at the biblical record at all, especially the Old Testament prophets that would bring messages to God's people, right? What would they say to them? Have you forgotten God? Remember God's goodness. Remember his love. Listen, you've forgotten God. You've walked away from him. You've turned your heart away from him. Sadly, you've forgotten your God. Turn back to him. That was the message of the prophets over and over and over. And in remembering uh, and forgetting what we should remember, we remember the things that we shouldn't. And we see that there is a tremendous value in forgetting the right stuff and, the rem- and remembering the right stuff. And Joseph's life illustrates that perfectly. We'll look at Genesis chapter 41. We'll pick up at verse 41 uh, in the Bible today. If you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of your rows. They're also, uh, we'll also be projecting it on the screens in front of you. Genesis chapter 41. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you're more than welcome to take one of those Bibles with you as a gift from us to you. And if you do have a Bible, we'd really like it if you would begin to bring it with you on Sunday morning. Genesis chapter 41. Before I read, let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to stand before your people. God, I thank you for this opportunity to gather and worship you today. I especially, Lord, thank you for what you want to reveal to us today through your word. God, would you show us what we should forget and show us, Lord, what we should remember And God, I pray that you would just begin to free us this morning from the burdens and the stuff of the past. Lord, we've all come in dragging with us stuff from the past, things that are hindering us, things that we know about and even things that we don't know about. So Lord, by the power of your spirit and through the truth of your word, Father, I pray that you would speak to us, reveal your heart to us, set us free. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 41. We'll begin at verse 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed the signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Verse 43. 
Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot, reserved for a second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. So life is good for Joseph. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new Egyptian name, Zaphneth, Zaphneneth, Paneah. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. He also gave him a wife whose name was Asnath. She was the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. So Joseph took charge of the entire land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he began serving in the courts of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And when Joseph left Pharaoh's presence, he inspected the entire land of Egypt. As predicted, for seven years, the land produced bumper crops. During those years, Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt and stored the grain from the surrounding fields in the cities. He piled up huge amounts of grain like sand on the seashore. Finally, he stopped keeping record because there was too much to measure. Verse 50. During this time, before the first of the, of the famine years, two sons were born to Joseph and his wife, Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar. Potipharah, the priest of On. Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Joseph named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. I'll read those last two verses again because those are where we'll camp out today. Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. And Joseph named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. So here we have yet another interesting installment of this story. Gives us some interesting detail about Joseph's life and this new sort of season of life that he's in. And honestly, I was intending before early this week to skip over this passage because this information is given to us almost parenthetically. If you're reading this story, you don't usually camp out in this place. You move to perhaps a more juicy uh, section of this story. But I want to camp out here because I think this particular section is specifically important. Joseph is riding high. He's a powerful man now, so much so that people actually have to bow when he enters their presence. So things are good for him. Not only are things good for him, but he's got himself a wife now. And he's got himself a couple of children. Now, this doesn't seem particularly remarkable to us because a number of us are married and we have children. You just figure that's how life is supposed to go. Well, not if you're a slave. Not if you were brought to Egypt as a slave and as a property of someone else. This This isn't how life is supposed to unfold for you. So this also speaks to how well Joseph is doing right now. But the Bible gets more specific here about the two sons that Joseph has, and it gets to the point where he tells us their names. Now, today is a little different. Our names don't tend to mean that much. I mean, our names mean something, but many of us don't know what our names mean. When we're trying to name our children, when our parents are possibly naming us, they were just trying to look for something that sounded cool, right? That would look good on the, you know, you know, uh, on the stuff that our name would be printed on. It's not trying to figure out like a deep, excellent, meaningful meaning for our name to name us something. But back in biblical days, your name meant something. 
God's people tended to name their children according to sort of what they would be or what they wanted them to be or what God had spoken to them, right? So the names and the meanings of the names of Joseph's children shouldn't be sort of trampled over because they're very, very important. And they give us some insight into Joseph's thinking and the internal workings of his heart as he deals with this new chapter in his life. And this morning, I want to look at the names of Joseph's two sons. More specifically, I want to look at the meanings of those names and see how we can apply this stuff to our own life. The first son that is born to Joseph is a son named Manasseh. And the scripture tells us that the meaning of the word Manasseh is God has caused me to forget my troubles and everyone in my father's family. The meaning of the name is simply forgetting, forgetting. And typically forgetting is characterized and framed as something that's negative. Oh, you forgot, that's a bad thing. Or you forgot, listen, you need to be more thoughtful. You need to, be, uh, you need to remember things more often. Typically we see forgetting as something that's negative, but certainly not in this case. Joseph's lives have taken many twists and turns, and there's plenty of things that are worthy of being forgotten, especially if he wants to move forward. And I think it's interesting that Joseph says that God has made me forget. Joseph didn't hit his head on something, and when he came to, he couldn't remember anything about his family. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Joseph was caused to forget some things about his past. But I don't want you to take this to mean that Joseph couldn't remember anything about his past, like he couldn't, you know, remember his parents' name or his brother's name or he wouldn't recognize them or just kind of like men in black style, you know, he's got flashed and can't remember any details from his past. That's not exactly what the text is getting at. But basically what the text is getting at is that Joseph, through the work of the Holy Spirit and for good reason, has caused to disconnect himself from the pain and the sting of the things of the past for the specific purpose of moving forward. He outlines what he's forgotten, my troubles. If you read Joseph's story, he at times was a man of sorrows. He could have become a blues singer and had lots and lots of material for lots and lots of records because he was a man of sorrow, a man acquainted with much grief. And much of that grief started with the family of his father, which, interestingly enough, is another thing that the Holy Spirit has helped him to forget. We mustn't forget that it was his brothers that, threat, that, that plotted to kill him. It was his brothers that sold him into slavery. So all these sorts of things that Joseph remembers and all these things and the, the implications of all of that he carries with him, and I believe he desperately needs to forget those things in order to move forward. And the same is true for us. But I think before we start to talk about us on a basic human level, particularly as it relates to forgetting and moving forward, I think God models a certain type of forgetting that I think is very important for us to consider as well. God forgets a lot of stuff, particularly our sin, particularly the less flattering things about us particularly our flaws and those things that would were not, were not for his forgetting or was not for his forgetfulness, the things that would disqualify us 
and keep us from inheriting the blessings, to keep us from inheriting the promises that he sets forth for us. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19 puts it this way, where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant or his people? Overlooking the sins of a special people, you will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the sea. I don't want much stuff being thrown into the depths of the sea. But if there's one thing that I would love to be thrown into the depths of the sea, never to resurface again, is my sin. My brokenness, my issues. Because my sin, which also happens to be the only real threat to relationship with God, the only real threat that would keep me away from God's plan, keep me away from God's purposes, keep me away from being everything that God called me to be, sin. That's the only thing that could threaten to separate us from God. Even God has to do something with that in order for him to move forward with us. Even God has to process that somehow, dispose of it somehow, so that he can move forward with us. Jesus Christ was a part of that method. And since Jesus died and rose again, the scriptures tell us that nothing can separate us from God's love. Not life or death, not angel or demon, nothing can separate us from God's love. Why? Because sin has been dealt with. And God has chosen to be forgetful about our sin through the work of the cross, through the resurrection of his son Jesus. He's dealt with that so he can move forward with us and we can live the the abundant life and experience eternal life through him. Now, if God, the creator of everything that we see, everything that was ever created, if God who knows all and understands all and is all-powerful, if he himself has to forget some things in order to move forward, what makes you think that you can tow around all of the stuff from your past, all of the memories, all of the hurts, all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the sort of thoughts of revenge and plots to get even, what makes you think you can live the abundant life and keep all of that stuff at the same time? What makes you think you'll experience any measure of godly success, godly functionality in this life or the next with that stuff in tow? What what makes you so special? What makes you more powerful and stronger than the God of all the universe? You don't have an answer because you shouldn't have an answer. You're not stronger, that is. You're not capable of holding that and at the same time holding what God has for you. You're not capable. You don't have enough hands. You don't have the capacity. And so if God has to forget some things, then we must forget some things as well. I love how Paul puts this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not already achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. These are Paul's words, and these are my words. 
And Paul, with lots and lots of stuff to focus on, with all sorts of cares for the churches and churches that haven't even been planted yet, Paul says, I, Paul, the apostle, I focus on one thing, one steadying thing, and that is forgetting the past and looking forward. Now, how many of us would benefit from that perspective? How many of us would would benefit from such a single-minded, single-hearted focus on forgetting the past and pressing on and moving forward. How, what might be different in your life if you weren't encumbered by the past? What might be different if you chose to forget the right things and if you began to instead remember the right things? So the burning question remains, what should we forget? We see that Joseph, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was allowed and empowered to forget some things. He said, okay, bring that down to earth. Bring that down to us right now. What should we forget so that we can move forward? Well, three things are important. It's probably more than three, but these are the three main things. The first is any confessed sin, you should forget about it. Now, notice I didn't say sin in general because many of us have some open accounts that we need to deal with. And by deal with, I mean we need to do business with God and reconcile ourselves to him as a result of a sinful lifestyle in general, but more specifically those things that we have done that violate God's law, that would separate us from his love and his providence. We need to deal with sin. And some of you have stayed away from church because of your sin. You've stayed away from Christian community because of your sin. You've stayed away from a life of devotion and reading the scripture and worship because because of your sin. And because of that, you've gone further and further away and deeper and deeper into your own cistern of, I don't know, self-pity and self-loathing or whatever, whatever you do down there. But those of us who understand that we need to deal with our sin and have been faithful to deal with that sin, it's just kind of absolutely foolish to still bear the weight, to bear the burden of something that God has forgotten. Scriptures tell us if we confess our sin to God, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. What a shame it is then to still carry the weight of guilt still carry the weight of something that happened 20 years ago, to be crushed by it, to be reminded of it, and to live as if God has not forgiven you. What a shame. What a shame. And I know I'm speaking to somebody here today. I know I'm speaking to somebody who's hearing my voice through the podcast, through the internet. Some of you are dealing with this right now. You can't live the victorious, abundant life, not because God hasn't forgiven you, but because you haven't, well, you haven't forgiven yourself. You still think you're on the hook for that. You're still self-conscious about that. You still feel that it disqualifies you. And until you forget those things as sharply and as thoroughly and as comprehensively as God forgets them, you will never be free from it. And it will be a weight that drags you down. Now, you may drag, you know, just one leg over the threshold of heaven. You may still make it in. But I doubt if you'll live the abundant life. I doubt if you experience functionality, the wholeness, the success of living life according to God's plan 
and his purposes. Any confessed sin is worthy of being forgotten and never relived again. Second thing we need to forget is, you know, the hurts and the pain of the past. I think this is probably the bigger one for us. Particularly if you sit in a a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, we talk a lot about God's forgiveness and the work of the cross. We take communion, you know, once a month, uh, at least once a month, and we talk about what that means and God's atoning sacrifice through his son Jesus, and you squared away this whole idea that your sins are covered and you've slowly been going through the process of healing and not carrying that, but, but some of us still are crushed under the weight of the hurt and the pain from the past. Particularly the hurt and the pain that came at the hands of someone else. Particularly the hurt and the pain that came from someone else that you loved and you trusted, somebody that was supposed to have your back, somebody that's supposed to be in your corner, somebody that's supposed to defend you and protect you, and yet they were the chief offenders. It's especially difficult to move on from the past. The hurts, the pains of the past. As many of us find some weird, some bizarre therapy in regurgitating past hurts, we find some therapy in feeling wronged and rehearsing over and over in our minds and perhaps telling it over and over to someone else just how, just how we've done, been done wrong and just how, you know, all of the stuff and the place and station in life we're in right now is a result of that. I can't move forward because of that. I can't accomplish anything because of that. I'm a jerk because of that. My dysfunction, my problems, I'm not responsible for it at all because that happened to me. Now listen to me, don't hear me trivializing the things of the past. Don't hear me trivializing your being uh, molested or abused or or judged or cast away and rejected. Don't hear me trivializing that because I'm sure the pain of that is still very real and it's had a major effect on who you are today and who you will be in the future and that you perhaps might forever bear the scars of that betrayal betrayal or that abuse or that rejection. I'm not trivializing it at all. What I'm saying, though, is like Joseph, if we don't figure out a way to forget that stuff, we cannot possibly begin to enter and to live the abundant life. We can't. We can't. Now, this doesn't mean that you forget the lessons that you learn because of it. doesn't mean you go on trusting people who don't deserve to be trusted and putting yourself back into harm's way. What it does, however, mean is that you're releasing yourself and releasing your life and releasing your heart and releasing your soul from the crushing weight of wanting to get even of wanting those people to pay, even if it's not by my own hands, because what I would do would surely, you know, land me in somebody's prison somewhere. But I just want to watch from afar to see them crumble. But what happens? They they hardly ever crumble, at least in front of you, do they? In fact, they seem to be thriving every time you, you know, spy on them through social media. They seem to be doing great. Everybody, by the way, is doing great on social media. Nobody's posting bad pictures, at least they don't think they're bad pictures, right? Everybody seems to be doing great, especially your ex. 
uh, especially your ex-husband or ex-wife or the person that wronged you, or the person that sort of cheated you in a business deal, they seem to be thriving because those are, you view it through the eyes of hurt. And you don't wish for their success. You don't wish that God would bless them. You don't wish that God would save them. And if you encountered them again, God's love can't be shown through you because, well, that thing happened. Because they said this and they did this. Hurt and pain of the past will keep you looking behind you and you can't run forward if you're looking backwards. Can't run forward unless, uh, if you're still looking backwards. So to forget the hurts and the pains of the past Keep us from having this woe is me attitude. Keeps us from being consumed with getting even or seeing that person's demise. And it focuses us on what God wants us to do and who he wants us to be. The third thing that I just want to highlight in terms of uh, not uh, what we should forget is even past blessings. God's blessings of the past. And I know that seems strange. I know that seems like one of the things that we might want to remember. And it is. And some small part something that we want to remember, something that we want to keep in our sights, that God has been faithful, that God has done stuff for us. But I would, I would suggest that sometimes God's past blessings and how he's poured out provision and blessing in the past can serve as something that would trip us up presently. And many of us are the good old day Christians. Well, all we talk about, all of our stories all of how we relate God to others is about what he did back in 76. And that one camp meeting, you know, where I felt the Holy Spirit and I got healed that one time, that's what you talk about. That's what you remember. And it causes a sense of frustration right now because you feel like, God, I need that, I need that same thing to happen right now. I think a perfect example of this is the children of, 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 the children of Israel as they were freed from slavery in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And God brought them out, and as they're traveling through the desert to the promised land, they begin to complain about the food that God had chosen to give them. They begin to complain about it. And what they would say was, man, when we were back in Egypt, man, we had leeks, we had garlic, man, we had fried chicken and everything. It was, life was so good back in Egypt, back in the day. God was so good to us back in the day. I want the details they left out of those griping sessions with that they were slaves in Egypt. Forced to do back-breaking labor all day long, and God provided that delicious bread probably just, you know, to take their minds off the fact that they were slaves. That was God's provisional care for them while they were slaves. But that's all they could think about as they traveled through the desert, and they grew tired of what God had supplied for them to eat. They just thought about the good old days, and it was a hindrance for them. It kept them from appreciating their freedom and their liberation. It kept them from looking forward to what God was going to do. And for many of us, the blessings and the, excuse me, the works of God in the past serve as painful reminders that we're not where we should be, or we're not where we want to be or we're not experienced God's blessing in the way that we want to see it. And sometimes remembering in an unhealthy way, past blessings keeps us stuck. And in a godly way, sometimes we need to just move on from that, realizing that that's what God did right back then. 
because that's what we needed back then. But here we are now, and God is doing a new thing. A new thing. And so we need Holy Spirit-induced, God-inspired forgetfulness in order to receive and to move forward and to do what God has called us to do. And Joseph himself stood at the threshold. Behind him, his past. Good, bad, and ugly. Stood behind him. Before him was a glorious future where he'd walk into his destiny and begin to realize who God created him to be. And he had a choice to make, and he chose to forget. Chose to forget. He chose to forget because it's forgetting that gives way to fruitfulness. Forgetting that gives way to fruitfulness. And there's something about a right now disposition that is a game changer in the life of those who follow Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about a right now disposition in that you're, you're short-sighted and you're narrow-minded and you don't consider the things around you and you don't use wisdom and discretion and prudence. But I'm talking about asking yourself, where am I right now and what is God doing right now? What, what is God doing right now? And oftentimes I get stuck, man, on what's happened, what's happening to me right now. And in the midst of that, I can't even focus. I can't even focus on what God is doing and where he's taking me. That's why I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for what we share because we have an interesting way of providing perspective for the other person. And sometimes I counsel people and they're in a funk And what I discover as they talk is that their spouse is in that same funk and they just sort of feed off of each other. Yeah, you feeling bad? Yeah, you should feel bad because that was a terrible thing. And we just hug each other and cry it out. But I'm thankful for my wife because when I'm tripping and when I'm lost my mind, she's usually in a good place. And she can usually remind me of what God has done and remind me of God's favor and remind us why we do this and remind us why we've given our hearts and our life to this. And usually when she's in a bad place, I'm in a better place, and I can remind her, say, listen, let's stay in the moment. What's God doing right now? Let's not reach back, because fruitfulness lies within the path of obedience. Fruitfulness lies in the wake of forgetting the past and moving forward. And as a symbol of what Joseph had chosen to do, he named his first son Manasseh. Now, Joseph has two sons, and his second son he named Ephraim. And the meaning of Ephraim's name is equally important to this process of moving forward, process of experiencing what God wants to do in our hearts, what he wants to do in our lives. And Joseph says uh, his, his name is Ephraim, and his name means God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. And Ephraim simply means doubly blessed. It's one thing to be blessed, but doubly blessed is like super blessed, ridiculously blessed. Doesn't even make sense how blessed you are. Like scratch your head blessed. And some of us could use a portion or two of that. But note that this comes after the forgetting part. This comes after, you know, releasing some things and moving forward. Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. And above all, outside of just being one to be faithful to God's 
plan and faithful to God's word and faithful who he called me to be. Listen, I desperately, I desperately want to be fruitful. I want my life to bear fruit. I want to be a blessing to other people. I want to be, I want to be fruitful. But some of us really struggle with fruitfulness. And some of us want fruitfulness for fruitfulness sake. We want to be fruitful because with fruitfulness comes, well, a bit of provision. Usually with fruitfulness, there's some excess. And usually with that excess, we're allowed to be comfortable. If you're really fruitful, you're allowed to be really comfortable. And so we desire to be fruitful, not for God's purposes, but because fruitfulness comes with some perks. Some of us want to be fruitful because fruitfulness is attractive. All right, you're fruitful, things are popping, things are working, all of a sudden people are following you on Twitter now. They're, they're, they're asking, you know, to be your friend on Facebook. You're getting invited to come places and speak. Just share, how, share with us how you've become so fruitful. It feels good to be fruitful. People admire that. People stop and they point and they talk in a good way when you're fruitful. So all these things that fruitfulness, sort of all these things that fruitfulness pr- produces, all of a sudden we become, want to become fruitful for fruitfulness sake because it provides an easier life. But here's what we need to understand about fruitfulness, particularly the God-inspired fruitfulness, and that is this, that fruitfulness is about purpose. God-inspired fruitfulness is purposeful. It's purposeful. When God designed apples to grow on an apple tree, he didn't do that so that people would gather around and say, man, look at those beautiful apples. He designed it that way so that people would reach up and grab those apples and not be hungry. That people might bake pies with those apples or perhaps give one to a teacher that they like. There's a purpose for these apples not to just be looked at as they sit on a tree. And the same is true of God-inspired Holy Spirit-induced fruitfulness, it's for a purpose. It's for a purpose. And that's why fruitfulness doesn't come overnight. That's why fruitfulness uses some struggle to that. There's usually a process to that. There's usually some time that elapses between the time where the seed is planted or the promise is given and the fruit begins to grow and mature on the tree. There's some time involved. There's usually some pain involved. There's usually some difficulty. There's usually some struggle involved. We want the fruitfulness, but we don't want the faithfulness. We want to be fruitful, but we don't want to be faithful. We want the fruitfulness, but we want it right now. But we see Joseph, we look at his life, man. He went through so much. He went through so much. But here, as he's in this position of power and influence, tasked with, you know, grabbing all of this resource so that it doesn't run out in the famine. All of a sudden, we all see, and he begins to see, that all of that stuff that God took me through was for a purpose. And even my current circumstance where I'm fruitful, doubly blessed, more than I could ever imagine, even this period of success and even this period of good times is for a purpose. For the greater glory of God and for the well-being of all these people who won't die because they got something to eat. 
They won't die because instead of just feasting on all of this grain and all of this resource and all of this supply, somebody's going to put it up for a rainy day. And all of a sudden, Joseph, sold into slavery, was for a purpose. Joseph, thrown into prison and forgotten about for over two years, was for a purpose. And even being exalted in a place of power, in a place of comfort, in a place of blessing, was for a purpose. For purpose. And Ephraim means blessings in the land of my grief. Joseph said, I brought here a slave. I'm not supposed to be thriving. I'm not supposed to be eating this good in Egypt, given the circumstances to which I was brought here. I'm not supposed to be thriving here. I'm not supposed to be thriving here. I'm not supposed to be successful here. This ain't what my brothers had in mind when they sent me here. This isn't what the enemy had in mind when I landed here. I'm not supposed to be blessed here. Not supposed to be doing well here. Fruitful in the land of my suffering. This is how you know that God's working something out. This is how you know that God's doing something even in your life, even in the midst of what's going on. Some of you are becoming fruitful in the land of your suffering. Shouldn't be working out this well. That's how we know it's God. God's fruitfulness baffles the mind. You didn't go to school for that job you have. You know what I'm saying? You shouldn't be in a place of influence like that. Everybody else was more qualified than you. Everybody was more equipped as it seemed to do that, but God chose so fit to, to put you there and to cause you to thrive and cause you to flourish there. It doesn't make sense how God does it. And when I look back over my life, man, all the places that God took me to, all the jobs that I worked, every single job that I worked, from Dunkin' Donuts to driving to Zamboni to being in sales, every ounce of that experience just curiously helps me do this job a whole lot better than I would without those things. Now, you'd ask me, you know, why I was working at Dunkin' Donuts, I was just probably would have told you this because I get a really good discount when I was in high school, you know? And all the, all the stuff along the way, even the hurtful things and even the painful things. And even the discomfort of moving away from a very homogeneous, you know, south side of Chicago down to an overwhelmingly white Champaign-Urbana. And God just would submerge me in ministry after ministry with people that looked nothing like me and people who thought nothing like me. And I would just wonder, Lord, why do you have me here? Why can't I just go down to the black church down there and do our black thing? and slap high fives and give each other some of this, you know? Why can't I do that? But when I look out over the landscape of what God has given us to steward right now, I realize that he sent me to Champaign-Urbana to get a social education more than an academic one. And what the Lord was teaching me there was to value people and to understand people so that when we were tasked with shepherding them, we could do a good job. And that this is just the beginning of what God would pour out, the beginning of what God would bestow upon us because we, we dared to be faithful in the seasons of struggling and seasons of lack and seasons of not understanding exactly what was going on. And here Joseph is a slave and he's running the show. Here's what Joseph is, he, he, he was a slave and now he's living out his dream, literally. Literally. Remember the dream he had? You remember the dream that he had? 
that he was exalted and those would, the stars around him and those other things around him would bow to him. Surely he thought that was a figurative of something. But it was literal because everywhere Joseph goes now, people got to get on their knees and bow because he's the man. Now, we're not peddling being the man or being the woman. We're peddling purpose. We're peddling success in a kingdom sense that you are reach a measure of success when you're doing what God put you on this earth to do. If it's shoveling snow, if it's flipping hamburgers, if it's working at the Boys and Girls Club, if it's CEO of a company, if it's pastoring a church, if it's leading a small group, success is doing what you're called to do. That's what success is. And here Joseph is doing what he's called to do, fruitful in the land of his suffering. And some of you ask today, and I'm, I'm eager to know, how do I obtain this fruitfulness? What was Joseph's secret? Joseph models this perfectly. His secret was simply to stay connected. To stay connected. At no point in the story do we ever get a hint of Joseph turning his heart, or turning his back to God. No point in this story, although we know it's just human nature to question, know it's human nature to watch the clock and to look at the minutes tick by and realize that the dream hasn't been realized yet and realize that the promise hasn't been manifested yet, although we know that that's probably what he spent a good deal of his time doing, especially when he was in the dungeon. We never see Joseph take his eyes off of God. He always seems to stay connected. And these are Jesus' words to us in John chapter 15. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, stay connected, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. And that answers the question quite thoroughly, doesn't it? And some of us are just puzzled as to why we, are, uh, we, we feel so dry and we feel so dead and there's no functionality, no sense of success, no sense of accomplishment in a deep and abiding way. You're, you, you're frustrated. You can't figure it out. And usually I can, especially after talking to you for a few minutes especially after observing your life for just a few moments, I can realize that you are disconnected. You're experiencing all types of questions and frustration. You're falling into sin to medicate your pain because you're disconnected. You're disconnected. You thought you were just in between churches, but it's been two years. You're disconnected. You thought that you just sort of, you know, didn't have time to pray and to connect with God, but it's been a couple months now, you're disconnected. You thought that you disconnected yourself from that small group because you didn't just really jive well with those folks, but no, you're, dis, you're disconnected. And Jesus tells us that the source of every good thing, the source of everything you need, including the steady and presence of God when things go crazy, comes through being connected to the vine. Comes through being connected to the vine. 
And notice I didn't say, uh, you know, I have an idea as to why you're going through a difficult time in your life. Usually I don't know why. And I'm not going to try to guess that. Because I feel like that has nothing to do with you doing well. You can be in the dungeon and still be doing well. You can be in the pig pen and still be doing well. You can be experiencing the most unfortunate of circumstances and still be doing well. We only need to look at Joseph. Never took his eyes off God. Always was faithful. Always stayed connected. And God was an anchor for his soul in his deepest of sorrows. But he never lost that connection, and he always thrived no matter where he was. And some of us, some of us are wallowing today. Some of us are discouraged today. Some of us even thinking about walking away from this thing altogether. Some of us thinking about taking our own lives today because we're disconnected. We're disconnected. And Jesus says, if you stay connected to me, I'll stay connected to you. If you abide in me, I'll abide in you. And you will be blessed even in the land of your suffering. And by the Holy Spirit's power, you will be able to forget the things that are behind you and you'll be able to move forward. Worship team, won't you come up as we close? My question to you is, where are you this morning as it relates to forgetting the past? Whether it be your sin, whether it be the hurts and pain from the past, whether it might be even God's providential care in the past? Where are you as it relates to forgetfulness? What have you carried in with you today into God's house of worship? And I think your plan before you heard this message today was to carry that stuff back out with you. But there's a message of hope for you today. You don't have to leave the same way you came. You can leave with a lighter load than you came. You can be free from that stuff. Maybe you've never heard that before. You can reconnect yourself to the vine today. Maybe you've never heard that before. But God, through his steadying presence and his steadying wisdom, gives us the strength and the courage to forget what we need to forget, remember what we need to remember, and to move into a place of blessing, functionality, and success because he said so. Because that's how he works. Now, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? So my challenge for you today as we worship is that you say, Lord, whatever you, want, whatever you want me to lay down, I'll lay it down. I won't pick it back up again. Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like you caused Joseph to fit, forget, would you give me the strength and the courage to forget the things that I need to forget so that I can be who you've called, us, called me to be? Would you move me, Lord, into a place of blessing, even in the land of my suffering, in the land of my sorrow, Would you provide for me? Would you care for me? Would you surround me with your blessing? Would you do that by the power of your spirit? That's my prayer for us as we worship. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, that you cause us to forget the things that we need to forget. And through that forgetting, God, you bring us freedom and joy and life evermore. God, you know, as I know, that it's difficult to forget sometimes. It's difficult to let go of our sin and our wrongs of our past. Lord, it's difficult to let people off the hook when we want them to pay for what they've done. It's even difficult, Lord, to make peace with what you've done in the past and to look forward to what you will do in the future, Lord. But we call us to do that. That's a necessary step if we want to thrive 
and not just survive. So Lord, by your spirit, would you store our hearts today to respond in faith to what you've called us to respond to today. God, as we worship you and as we sing uh, to you and as we rehearse songs of your goodness, Father, I pray that you would break chains, that you would lift burdens, and that you would bring new life to us in Jesus' name, that we might leave differently than when we came. So Holy Spirit, speak. Holy Spirit, stir. Create newness of life, newness of focus in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.